Christmas time is here. I'm not sure if you've noticed. <laughs> so a few things that have changed. What is the most exciting thing about Christmas for you, I wonder? Uh, as much as I try as a parent to teach my kids and to elevate them to more spiritual things in this season, it's all about presence. It's the most exciting thing uh, that fills their mind. And I'm sure many of us were the same at their age, uh, but to be honest, I'm probably the same now. Um, perhaps still, yeah. I can't really blame the kids. There is something wonderful. There's something exciting about the anticipation of Christmas morning, of opening a gift that has been given to you, of being picked just for you. It's exciting and wonderful. This week... Uh, is the third week in our Advent series. And it's a series focused on waiting, on anticipating, on, and expecting the received wonderful gift from God, Jesus Christ. And as we wait, we think about the wonder of that gift of Jesus that we have heard of so far. And what we heard of so far is that he brings with him hope, and he brings with him peace to us. And this morning we're going to hear that he is also a gift of joy to humanity. And to do this, we're going to follow along with the theme presented in Isaac Watts' uh, song, Joy to the World, which many of us are very familiar with. And I'm sure uh, another thing we're familiar with is a proverb that we've all heard at Christmas time, particularly. It's better to give than it is to receive. Well, this morning we're going to talk about the joy of receiving. So let's pray and then we'll get stuck in to this message. Heavenly Father, we give thanks in this season, Lord, uh, of being able to look forward to the day or reflect back on when your son first came, but look forward to the day in which you will return. And yet this morning there are so many distractions, so many things that pull us away, particularly in this season, uh, Lord, of schedules coming to closes at the end of the year, of family having to go every direction, um, even of sickness that rocks up uh, just from spending so much time with people, uh, things that can pull us away from being able to think about the wonder of the gift that comes in your son that you've given us. Father, this morning I pray that you would help us, Lord, to quieten our hearts, to be able to have an ear, to be able to hear your word, and a heart to be able to receive it, Lord. In this we pray. Amen. I wonder if you remember, even from this morning's reading, what the words of the angels were to the shepherds as they tended their flock. Don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for the people, all the people. Can you imagine any piece of news being given that would bring great joy to all people? I can't imagine anything. For every soccer match that your team wins and the victory that you feel in it, there are losers on the other side. 
that don't feel that peace and that joy. For every war that's won, somebody has lost. I think even if global peace was achieved outside of what we heard last week from Rex, outside of the work of of Jesus, there would still be people disgruntled, unhappy, unable to forgive and to move on. There would still be people that were not joyful over hearing of that good news. There is no occasion, I think, aside from what we speak on this morning, where people are united in a common joy except for the arrival of Jesus Christ. He is the good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Philippians 2 tells us that it is at the name of Jesus that every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But it's not only people that will sing for joy when Jesus arrives. What's wrote in his song, there won't just be men whose joyful songs employ, but all of heaven and nature sing. The rocks, the floods, the hills, the plains, the fields repeats the sounding joy. It sounds familiar. Heaven, we know, breaks out in song at the arrival of Jesus. We read of it this morning. We know it to be true of the angels that the whole heavenly host or a heavenly host appears above those shepherds singing glory, speaking of the glory of God at the arrival of his son. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favour rests. And nature itself glories in his arrival. It's been waiting, longing and groaning for the, the expected day in which the son arrives and his sons are glorified. In Psalm 96, we read a description of the reaction of creation to the coming of the Lord. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees and the forests sing with joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. And he'll judge the world in righteousness and the people in his faithfulness. I don't know what is harder. To have all of humanity find a common joy or to make a rock sing. And yet the arrival of Jesus makes both of those things come true. So significant is he that all of creation, men, women, children, rocks, trees, the seas and angels join together in joyful song. And I can't even imagine it. I cannot imagine it. An event so profound, a person so significant to everybody 
so wonderful that we would all have this reaction. It's too much to imagine. Who is this child that we remember come Christmas time? What is it about Jesus being born in this manger that creates such celebration throughout the cosmos? Such cosmic joy. In Joy to the World, Watts gives us two wonderful answers as to who this child is, who Jesus is. He is our saviour and he is our reigning king. All the way back in Genesis, after Adam and Eve have eaten of the forbidden fruit, God speaks to them of the curse of sin and death that has now fallen and reigns over humanity and creation, now bound in subjection to it, slaves to sin. Sin and sorrow and thorn and thistle. This is the great fault and plight that plagues humanity and creation at every turn. Now, I wonder if I could tell you a story of the greatest war in history, certainly one of the longest wars in history, the war of the homeowner, the war of every gardener. I'm talking about the war of the lawn. (laughs) My lawn always has weeds in it. No matter what I do, I spray, I pick, I weed and feed, I fertilise And when the weeds are gone for those few brief days, what I'm left with is empty, barren ground. (laughs) And one day I will die and the weeds will grow up on my grave. (laughs) A touch dramatic maybe, but as I look upon my grass and the weeds that devastate it and consider my struggle and the struggle really of any lawn owner or garden enthusiast, I see an image of the human condition. Oh, how I would love to remove every sin that infests the ground of my own soul. Yet for every one that I seem to be able to remove, I discover two more, three more, four more. And after a day or a year or ten years of working, you look back to be able to see the progress that you've made, only to see that they've all regrown. But maybe now they're twice the size and gone to flower. And everything that you've done has come to naught. Every sin plucked seems to have regrown. Perhaps you feel this at times as well. Every deed in this life seems to have its own selfish motivation. Even my repentance needs to be repented of. This is the human condition. This is our condition, isn't it? There is no hope to be had in removing a single sin from our life by our own hand let alone aspiring to be perfectly holy and having peace with God. 
And it's not just our souls, but our bodies, and in fact, all of creation that tells the tale of the curse, of subjection to it. We see it in illness, in scars and pain, of the inevitability of decay and rot and death, and in the very thorns that infest the ground. Not just our souls, but the ground itself bears the curse. And no matter how many healthy drinks or fish oil tablets, exercise or environmental programs we sign up to, there's no end. No end to it. So all of creation and humanity included is left in a position that is hopeless, peaceless, joyless, and in great need. In need not of help, not in need of advice, but in need of being saved, in need of a saviour. Listen to these words from Watts. No more... Let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the grounds. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. The arrival of Jesus is the arrival of this Saviour. From sin and sorrow and thorn and thistle, that the end of the reign of the curse of our lives will be brought and made true and real. Philippians 2, that I quoted earlier before, says that it is the very act of Jesus having the nature of God, humbling himself to the likeness of man that we celebrate at Christmas and being obedient even to death on a cross that results in God exalting him to such a high place that every knee would bow. It is his saving work that makes him so wonderful, such a joy to have. For he comes as our saviour. And not only does he end the curse by removing Weeds forever by removing the curse from us and from creation. But he gives blessing to the barren soil. As far as the curse is found, that means as wide, as deep, as long and as high as those curses affected us. And creation Now his blessings reside. The blessing of having Jesus, a saviour that is and gives us hope and peace and the blessing of boundless joy for all of creation. What a significant person. What a significant saviour. But he's not our saviour alone. He is also the reigning king. And what a king. 
Now, every king or queen or president or prime minister is remembered in the history books for something that they have done. The way that they reigned or ruled or led the nation. Did they engage in war or peace? If so, what did they fight for? Was it for power or dominion or injustice? Did they bring prosperity or poverty to the people? Were they honest and upfront or sneaky and deceitful? Did they leave a bad taste or a bad smell about them and in the mouths and noses of the people? Or were they celebrated and rejoiced in? Reading through First and Second Kings in the Old Testament, it doesn't take long to notice a certain trend in the kings. Again and again you read the description, so-and-so was as bad or did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than those before them. Only getting worse, worse. (laughs) And what's more is that these kings or these rulers, presidents, prime ministers, they never reign in isolation. But their people follow along with them. That's the role that they occupy, leaders of people. So when we hear at the beginning of our song, Joy to the World, and in many places throughout Scripture, that the earth will soon receive her king, that is Jesus, we must wonder, what type of king will he be? How will he reign? For he is coming into a position of power, not only over a single nation, nor many, but over the world and more, over all of creation. Every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow and every tongue call him Lord. Every tongue. Furthermore, his reign is one that will last forever. The one relief the people always had from a particularly bad king is that one day he will die. His reign will come to an end or an invasion will take place and there will be a new ruler, a new power to take that place. There will always be hope in the new king the next king. But not so with Christ. Daniel, in chapter 7, has a vision of kings coming and going over time. Across the world. Until the one that was like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. He is given authority by the ancient of days, authority, glory and sovereign power over all nations and people. And every one from every tongue worships him and his dominion lasts forever and knows no end. It will never pass away and never be destroyed. So if he is the king over everything, and it will last forever. How important it is that he be a good king. Well, we read in Watts' song something of how 
he saw Jesus as king for eternity. He will rule the world with truth and grace and righteousness and love. Psalm 45 deepens our understanding of the wonder of what it will be like to have Jesus as king. If you're familiar with it, it is a royal wedding psalm. But unlike the weddings that we are familiar with, it doesn't sing the glories of the bride, but the glories of the bridegroom. And the psalmist spends most of his time talking about the splendor of the king and how wonderful he is. Very briefly, here is what the psalmist says to describe this king. He's better than every other man. His speech is filled with words of grace. When he fights, he wins. And what he fights for is truth, humility and justice. He rules his kingdom in perfect accordance with the wisdom of God and in justice. He loves everything that is righteous and he hates everything that is wicked. He is blessed by God as joyful himself. He is a joyful king. And the psalmist goes so far as to even say that he smells good. There is nothing unpleasant about this king. I love that small detail about how he smells. Because you imagine someone that you take delight in just to walk the halls of his kingdom and to smell that he's nearby and be filled with joy, knowing that you may see him soon. My understanding of this psalm is that the joy we will experience at the hands of Jesus as King is not just a joy in the work and what he does and has given to us. Not just that we have access to heaven, but it is a joy in him in how wonderful he is, in someone who loves and saves his people, who reigns beautifully, magnificently, wonderfully. We sing with joy because he has arrived. And he is the most wonderful and beautiful and excellent of people. And you just want to spend time with him. He himself is the great prize of Advent and Christmas. Now both the psalmist and Isaac Watts are both songwriters. And musos tend to be people that are a touch more in tune with their feelings than the rest of us. I hope that's not offensive to everyone. How far should we take their words when they talk about beauty and wonder What is the proof that he will actually be like this? As wonderful as this. Well, Watts gives us a great measurement in his final verse. The proof and evidence of the character of this eternal king of the world is actually right here in front of me this morning. It's you. And it's me. It's the gospel and the fruit of salvation that proves his character. 
and how he will reign for eternity. That being in the nature of God, he would humble himself to be a man. A servant being obedient to death on a cross for the father, for himself, for us. And I know I've said this already. I've read this scripture passage already in Philippians, but it is astounding stuff. The nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonder of his love. Every time we are unsure as the evidence of Christ's character or his desire for truth and peace and righteousness and justice and love, we have only to look in the mirror. We are the proof. Like men that wear too much cologne, we are drenched in the wonderful smell of our Saviour. Saturated in it. Now Isaac Watts gives an instruction in his first verse. He says these words, Let every heart prepare him room. And it seems after speaking and hearing of Jesus as our Saviour and our King, and the quality of him, that it is only right that we would make room in our hearts for this king. If anyone deserves it, it is him. But if I'm being totally honest, I struggle to do this. To make room for him that he deserves. It seems that my heart is already too full of many other things that I love, of many of those weeds that I can't seem to pull. And yet isn't this the good news that we have in Advent, that we are awaiting a saviour who made room in his own heart for us, who will free us so that we can be full of him without restriction without sin and so we look forward to the day in which he comes I wonder if we feel this way at Christmas and the rest of the year that you're never able to worship him as you wish that you could isn't it a relief to know then that that's why We are still in Advent. It's not just a time that we remember before he was born as a a man 2,000 years ago, but the time in which he will return again and bring to completion his work and his reign and pour his blessings upon us as far as that curse is found finalising who he is and what he has done. And so we have a sure hope and peace and joy today that there'll be even more when he comes in him. And so from the reading that we didn't hear this morning, from Revelation chapter 1, verses 4, 
grace to you and peace from he uh, from him who is and what who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ the faithful witness and the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his, uh, to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I give thanks for being able to preach this, being able to spend time, Lord, hearing and learning about you, of being able to spend time reflecting on your beauty and on the days that lay ahead of us. There are, Father, struggles in which we, with our sin, Father, cannot see, cannot hold you in the place that we wish and that you deserve to be held in. Yet we give thanks that there is a day coming in which all sin will be wiped away. The thorns will be ripped up. Lord, having already been paid for by your, your own body. Lord, and we'll be free to rejoice and delight in you and you will be delighting in us and we will have all of eternity to rejoice in one another. But Father, I pray that this morning that we have heard something of your glory, that we would hold it close and that you would keep it fresh for us, Lord God, that we might rejoice and share our joy with those around us of the advent of the joy that we have with you. Thank you, Heavenly Father, and we look forward to the return of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.